Our scripture reading for today comes from John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. But as we dive into our message today, I invite you to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You are a God who uh, has plans for your church that wants to bring us together. Lord, and as we uh, look at scripture about unity in a time where it's so easy to devolve into an us versus them, I pray that you speak to us, uh, you draw us together, Lord, that we can find that common cause, that common compassion uh, in a common Christ. Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. So today we're going to be hanging out in John 17. And before we talk about the actual scripture itself, it's really important that we as Christians understand the original audience of the Gospel of John. So we've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the first three are something that we call the Synoptic Gospels. They were the first three Gospels that were written to the early church, each to a different demographic, but all essentially using the same stories, just emphasizing different parts. And so the story of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, was written to early Christian Jews, and it helped tie in the story of how this, uh, the, the Old Testament scriptures all were going to lead up to Jesus. Luke was written to Hellenistic or Greek uh, Christians, those who came from a Greek culture, a Greek faith, and had converted to Christianity. And so it tells the story in a different aspect with different emphasis to better connect to who they were that they could understand. But the Gospel of John was written about 20 years after the Synoptic Gospels. So Christianity had been spreading for a while. And no longer was it merely a Jewish or a Greek religion, but now it was getting all across the world. There were all these different cultures that were coming to believe in Jesus. And in believing in Jesus, they brought their culture with them. They brought their favorite ethnic foods with them. They brought their languages with them. They brought how they thought about the world with them. And with all of that came a level of division and dissension. Much like the Christian church today, not just in America, but across the whole world, right? It's all these different cultures coming together. And so John writes this gospel to them. He's writing to a people who are struggling with who is Jesus. Because every culture takes Jesus, and you still see this today. If you go to Asia and you look at a picture of how they draw Jesus, guess what? He looks Asian. If you go to Africa and you look at how they draw Jesus, he he looks African. If you go to the United States, right, it's the blonde hair, blue eyes Jesus. Each culture takes him, 
And they form them in the eyes that they know because they want to be able to relate to him. And so John is writing to an audience with a bunch of different ideas of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. And he writes to them, and as they're reading this gospel, the original readers, Jesus says something. He says, my prayer is not for them, and he's talking about his disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. This is powerful because Jesus is saying, I'm not just going to pray for my disciples. I'm going to pray for those who come after them. And if you are the early gospel readers of John, the original audience, what you hear is that Jesus prayed for them specifically. Not just for the apostles, the first 12, the first core group, but all that would come after them. Jesus had a prayer for. That's powerful. And in fact, as we as the church who are descendants of those original hearers, we too have the truth that Jesus prayed for us. I don't know about you, church, but sometimes I can feel that my prayers aren't always effective. And they are. But if you're going to bank my prayers versus Jesus' prayers, I'll take his prayers any day of the week. So Jesus had a prayer for his church. And what was that prayer? He wanted them all to have the same heart so that they may be brought into complete unity. John saw the early church starting to divide, starting to fracture, starting to wrestle with who Jesus was and why he had come. And so he wanted to emphasize in his gospel the prayer that Jesus gave those followers. That even with our differences, even with our different backgrounds, our different languages, our different passions, that we were still called to have unity. That we were still called to be together. That we were still called to walk and follow Christ even though we come from different backgrounds. And this next part is really important because this next part is something that, quite frankly, I have wrestled with a ton over the last year and a half. Unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we have all the same thoughts, all the same ideas of how we are supposed to live our life, right? Uniformity would have made the last year and a half a lot less stressful, a lot less divisive. If we all just had one plan for what we were going to do and how we were going to operate, But you see, uniformity isn't unity. No, uniformity is tribalism by a different name. It's us getting into our own tribes and saying, if you don't think like me, if you don't act like me, then you are clearly the enemy. And then we start to divide ourselves from those of other tribes. And while it makes life simpler, it doesn't make life better. And that is not what Jesus was after when he called his disciples. That's not the type of unity that he was after. Because what we find in tribalism, tribalism is just a form of sin. Because even if you were just with your own tribe, even if your own tribe gets what they want, eventually that tribe will fracture into smaller tribes. Because as soon as we get one thing, we're going to want another thing. And what we find out is, eventually we end up in a tribe of one because that's what sin does. That's all it knows how to do. It just tears apart relationships until we're alone. 
until unity is completely impossible because unity cannot happen by ourselves. It's something bigger, something more beautiful, something more grand than God, than we by ourselves could ever imagine. It's a gift from God. So the question is, well, where does unity come from? And from a common grace perspective, we see unity all over the world. There's a group of uh, guys at this church, uh, and we've got a men's manager group. And all of us are trying to figure out how do we become better managers of the people that God has brought underneath us. It came uh, from me, uh, not because I thought I was the perfect manager, but in fact, it was the exact opposite. I realized that I, as a pastor, had a staff underneath me, and I didn't know what I was doing. And so we got a group of guys together and said, hey, uh, none of us are experts here, but all of us are trying to learn together here. Uh, And so we started to work together and try to share best practices and some of the best practices that we have talked to that not only are Christian, but actually just throughout the world, is unity comes from having a common cause or a common goal. Actually, in marriage counseling, oftentimes when there is particular division or dissension within a marriage, what a counselor will do is say, hey, can you guys have a common goal together? So if you're wrestling with money, maybe say, hey, we have a common goal to go on vacation or to buy a house, and because we have a common goal, we're willing to work at that together. You see common goals a lot in sports, right? So college football kicked off this weekend in earnest, and you get entire stadiums with a common goal together. They sing the same songs together. They're all in their willing hearts trying to get their team to win, right? Common goals create unity, But it's not just common goals, but it's common compassion. When you look at the biblical world for compassion, it means to feel for someone from the stomach, to have a heart for them, to connect to them. One of the big words we use today is empathy, to understand why a person thinks and feels the way they do, to be able to connect our core to someone else. Because just having the common cause by itself, leaves us brittle. Whereas when we have that common empathy, when we can understand people, it connects us to them, and it unites us in a deeper way. But again, common cause, common compassion, those are worldly things, not bad things, but they're not distinctly Christian things. What we have in Christ is a common Christ in the church a common Messiah, a common Lord, and that is what makes us distinct. That, as Christians, is what sets us apart. Not above, mind you, not higher than to lower it over, but literally to be holy meant to be, to be set apart, to be different, to be distinct. And in Christ, in who he is and what he came to do, that is the secret sauce that then informs our compassion and our unity. It's why at the end of the Gospel of John, he writes these words, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. John frames his entire Gospel as an opportunity to understand who Jesus is a little bit better to understand what God is trying to do through him, that he is both Savior and Lord, that we have a God who reaches out with his arms and says, I love you this much, 
But he's not only Savior, he's also our Lord. He's the master, we are the disciple. He's the teacher, we're the student. And what makes Christianity distinct is when we follow him, when we seek after him, when we trust him, when we put his will and his teaching above our own will and our own teaching. And when we get off of that, we lose what makes us distinct from the rest of the world. We lose what sets us apart from the rest of the world. And over this last year and a half, in fact, over just Christianity's entire existence, it is a a story, I can't remember who asked me uh, this, but they said, if you could ever write a book that wasn't fiction, what would it be called? And I said, Adventures in Missing the Point. Because so often as Christians, we we end up on these side trails that take us away from who Jesus is. We either start constructing Jesus in our own image, and we build him, and all of a sudden he looks like the guy I see in the mirror, just a little bit smarter, a little bit kinder. He's just a step or two ahead of me, and Jesus isn't a step or two ahead of me. No, he's both walking alongside me, step by step, but he's also infinitely more loving, infinitely more kind. No matter how far I go, no matter how much I grow in his image, I'll always have more. I'll always be able to grow deeper, and that is a beautiful, that is a good thing. But so often, again, I I start to distort him, and in doing that, I lose what makes us distinct, and then those other aspects of unity— common cause and common compassion start to fall apart. And yet, when I am following him, when I am in sync with him, I actually get this radical compassion, something far beyond anything that I would have by myself, something far beyond anything I would see in the rest of the world. No, but in light of Jesus, I act and live differently. I love this scripture from Ephesians, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And translated today, don't post that. Don't consume that media. Right? But instead, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Instead of tearing down the other tribes, he says, no, build them up. Focus on what's going to help them, what's going to help them take the next step in whatever God is trying to lead them in. And sometimes that means having hard conversations, but from a different lens, from a different perspective, and certainly a different posture. And then we get into that posture. All right? For the benefit of those who may listen, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. He ties our compassion to others to God's compassion for us. Because because we have this type of God, because we have this type of Christ, because we have a Jesus and a Savior and a Lord who has compassion for you even when you're acting out, even when I'm acting out, because we've been forgiven, we forgive others. Because we have a God who seeks to build us up, we seek to build others up. Because we have a God of compassion, we have radical compassion for those God brings into our life. And then that leads us to a radical cause, a radical goal. No longer are we satisfied with these small little, well, did Sunday service go well? How was our small group? Right? These are good things, but they're not radical. They don't change the world. 
No, what changes the world is when the people of God love their neighbor as themselves in a deeply and holistically, distinctly Christ-centered way. We become more committed to the cause. We're willing to sacrifice more for the cause. We're willing to go all in on the cause as opposed to keeping one foot in the church and one foot in the world. No, we live as the church in the world as little ambassadors of Jesus. So what does that look like? What does radical cause look like? Well, for me, one of the biggest proofs of how Christianity spread comes from a guy named Julian the Apostate. The Apostate, uh, or an apostate, is someone who is aggressively anti-religious against the specific religion, right? So the reason why he's called the apostate is he was an emperor of Rome in the third century. And at this point, Christianity had been around for about 300 years, and it had been growing and it had been spreading. And originally, within the Roman Empire, Christians were persecuted very severely, right? We were thrown into the rings of the Colosseum. We were outlawed. We were hung upside down on crosses. Right? But as the years went on, each emperor would have a different spin on Christianity until Constantine. And Constantine allowed Christianity to be legal. But a couple emperors beyond him was Julian. And Julian was a Hellenist, a Hellenistic Roman. He wanted the Roman religion to come back. But he realized that he could no longer persecute Christians. In fact, by his research, persecuting Christians actually made our faith grow faster. And so he researched the church a ton. He wanted to figure out why Christianity kept spreading. And he would write to his priests, to the followers of his religion, this is why Christianity is spreading. The reason why I bring this up is oftentimes when we look at history and how we write about ourselves, we put it in a... Um, Oh, gosh. History, when history is written by the victors, right, it's sometimes hard to take it seriously, right, because you think there's going to be a spin on it. But this is an apostate. This is someone who is aggressively anti-Christian. And this is what he says about the early church. Uh, to one priest, he says, Why do we observe that the Christians' benevolence to foreigners, their care for the graves of the dead, and their pretended holiness of their lives— that has done more to increase atheism. Now, again, you've got to read it opposite, because to him, atheism is being against the Roman religion. So what is he saying here? Right? Why do we not observe that it's, our, that it's the Christian's benevolence, how we care for foreigners, how we care for the dead, and as he said, our pretended holiness, but how we lived our lives, that was, what was why Christianity was increasing. To a, another priest, he writes this, for when it came about the poor... Uh, the poor were neglected and overlooked by our own priests, so he's talking about the Roman priests, then I think the Christians observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. By the same method, I say the Christians also began to have their so-called feasts of hospitality, and as a result, they have led many to, again, atheism, but you've got to look at it from his language or his view. Essentially what he says is this. Why was Christianity spreading? because we cared for the foreigner, because we cared for the poor, because our outward character matched what we preached, and because we threw the best parties. 
the Roman emperor who wanted to get rid of Christianity looked at what we were doing, looked at why we were spreading, and it wasn't because we had the best preachers. It wasn't because we had the best buildings. It wasn't because we had the most money. It was because we were loving our neighbor radically. We were loving anyone God brought into our lives. And so if you were a foreigner, we loved you. If you were poor, we loved you. Because our character, the way we lived our lives when we were at work, when we were at play, when we were with our families, reflected what we preached on. And, and this part's awesome, because we threw great parties. Because we gathered people together to celebrate and live. Because as John says at the end of his Gospels, I have written this that you may have life and life in his name. You see, this unity, this radical cause, caused us to live differently. Life lived differently invited others to live life differently. Christianity's cause was to love our neighbor as ourselves in a very real and tangible and practical way. And it happened not because one person was doing it, Not because one city was doing it, but Christians all across the Roman Empire, the early church together said, this is our cause, this is our compassion, because this is our Christ. That's why Jesus says the effect of what that unity is going to bring in John, so that they, the next generation of Christians, may be brought to complete unity. Why? because then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me, because then the world will know. You see, our witness comes from our common cause and our common compassion from a radical Christ, which then leads to radical compassion and a radical cause. You see, that's what God is after in unity. Not that we become uniform, we all think the same way, we all act the same way, we all sing the same way, we all worship the same way. No, he's after unity which is deeper and more transformative and more radical, but also more powerful. And again, guys, this is something where I personally struggle with. Not having uniformity over the last year and a half has been one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with as a pastor to realize that no matter what decision we make, we are going to have some division as to what that should have been, right? Because we started with uniformity. We started off with a uniform rhythm of church. Pre-2020, we all knew the rhythm. And then 2020 hit and the rhythm got off. But if I'm going to be honest, the thing that drew me to this church wasn't the rhythm of life that we had. It was our unity in sending Sundays and in acts of love and of pubologies and community groups and just the way we did life together that led us to this radical compassion, radical cause because we believed in Jesus together. So as we go into this next season where we won't have uniformity, where we're still going to struggle and wrestle with how we do life together, ultimately what we are standing on is Christ. And that Christ will teach us how to better love one another, 
how to better connect and care for one another, and then together we will go out in common cause together to see the gospel and the love of our neighbor transform one neighborhood, community, and world. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you uh, first and foremost asking for forgiveness. Lord, for the times where we have allowed our own view of what should happen, Lord, our own self-righteousness, that we would rather be right than in right relationship. Lord, separate us from those you have put in our lives. Lord, where we, where we bought the world's lie that it's more important to be among those who are like us than to be among those who are seeking after you. Lord, we ask forgiveness. But Lord, we are bold to ask for forgiveness because of the gospel of Jesus a God who continually reaches out with forgiveness and love and compassion, that you forgive us in Christ Jesus so that we may better forgive our neighbor, that we may better build them up and seek their good. Lord, in, in doing that, in living that rhythm, self-sacrificing, Lord, not just as individuals, but as your church, Lord, that that radical cause becomes a fragrance of you. Lord, that we may be better representatives that the world may know of the God that they have and a community that wants to wrap their arms around them. We say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. I invite you to join us as we go into worship.